Jesus is the word. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your presence here. I ask that you would prepare every heart in this room, make us fertile soil to hear your word. I ask that you would anoint Pastor Cameron's lips, that he would faithfully deliver what he's prepared, deliver what's on your heart. Um, yeah, that we could come in alignment with where you want us to be and where you're guiding. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, how about, um, let's vote by raise of hands if Eric should do announcements every week. You're hired. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and now he's off to um, to lead Orange Room in uh, for Kindo Kids. So, um, as as Eric mentioned, both of those things, both the family meeting um, happening at the end of the month, as well as um, baptism, can both be signed up for on the app. If you don't have the app, the family meeting. One, um, most of you should have got a little uh, a letter in the mail with a slip of paper that you can also RSVP in. If you didn't get one of those but you still want to attend, there's um, those little slips of RSVP paper in the back at the offering um, bucket. If you didn't get one, it's because we don't have your address. Um, and so you can always come and uh, talk with either Pastor Luke or myself um, after service. For baptism, you're going to want to choose, when you go to the app, going to hit the next steps button right there on the home page and that's going to give you an opportunity to sign up um, to be baptized as well there and then uh, Pastor Luke or myself will be contacting you as soon as we get that sign up to talk about what the, the next steps from your next steps are. Um, okay, well my name is, my name is, Pastor, my name is Cameron, uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Conduit and we are indeed glad that you are here. Um, we're uh, going to continue in our series called Overflow this week, and for the past couple of weeks, we've talked about um, a, a couple of different topics as it pertains to money and possessions and the Christian faith. How do believers in Jesus Christ um, process through, God bless you, uh, process through, handle, look at, deal with money and possessions? You know, it's sometimes... You know, like we talked the first week about how there are often things that you don't talk about when you sit down in certain areas, right? Like when you sit down and someone cuts your hair, right? You, you stay away from talking about politics and you stay away from talking about religion because those aren't the things that people talk about in polite company, right? But how we want to change the, nar- the narrative for at least us here, understanding that if something, if we see something both apparent and um and explicit in the scripture, we, we don't ever want to get into a position where we're ignoring the things that God thinks are important. And we believe um, just because they're hard to talk about, right? But because they may challenge something that we think or believe, or whether they may not even challenge the things that we might think or believe, but they may challenge the sin that exists within us, right? Or the hardness of heart, or the stubbornness that exists within us. And so, um, my commitment to you as one of your pastors here is to always um, is to always ensure that we are bringing the full counsel of God. And I will not hide things that are difficult to hear simply because they are difficult to hear or they are large pills to swallow. Um, 
And I hope you know, uh, I hope you know that about me and about our life together here as a church. So we talked the first week about um, where we put our trust and dependence, um, where we lean towards our trust and dependence on the possessions that we have or the things materially that exist in our lives, or whether the sole source of our trust and dependence in life is upon our Heavenly Father, similar how the Jews trusted Jesus or trusted uh, their Heavenly Father in uh, the book of Exodus when he provided manna for them, right? Manna in the desert. Last week, we talked about the concept of generosity and how there is, there is, there is no provision anywhere in all of heaven or earth for there to be a stingy Christian person, right? Someone who follows Jesus, who believes in him by faith, but does not excel in what Paul called the grace of giving. And so as, as people who follow Jesus, we want to be, uh, we want to continually excel in the grace of giving, allowing the Holy Spirit of God to transform any of our unhealthy ownership of the things that we have so that we can be free with the things that God has provided to us to bless others as well. Radical generosity. I promised today that, um, and I see a few, few people are strangely missing from the room this morning. Must be a lot of vacations happening this week, right? When I told you last week that we were going to be talking about tithing today, all right? This beautiful, beautiful topic of tithing, Okay. I'm going to jump right into it, right, with this. What is tithing, or where did the tithe originate? Most people understand, at least in some regards, that tithing actually represents a percentage, right? That tithe literally means or is translated as tenth, okay? And so when we talk about tithing... um, this is the thing that even non-Christians generally know about the, about the church or about the Christian faith is that tithing is the opportunity that the church or ministry or whomever gives you to invest 10% of your resources, usually it's simply your financial resource, into the ministry of the church or into this parachurch ministry or into that parachurch ministry. It's an opportunity to give a portion or a percentage of what you have to the ministry of the church, to the ministry and building of the kingdom. But we don't often talk about where that came from. Where, where did that start? Where did it originate? What did it mean? What does it mean for us? We're going to talk about that this morning, okay? Um, so the, uh, the, t- the tithe is something that is not a new idea within Christian faith. In fact, it's not a Christian idea at all. It's actually a Jewish thing, right? At the beginning of our Bible, the beginning sections of our Bible, the Old Testament, we have all of the history of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. We started at Abram, right? And went all the way to Jesus. And, um, and the tithe was established very early on in the history of the Jewish people. Uh, The Old Testament, the Jewish people were commanded as a part of their law or as a part of their kind of like religious boundaries to offer a few different types of tithes at a few different times in their calendar life or in their worship life. 
And it's what they considered to be a part of their ceremonial law. You often hear maybe in the New Testament, Jesus talking about it, Paul talking about it. You hear it talked about in the Old Testament as well, this word or this idea of the law, right? The Jewish law was very, very extensive, over 600 commandments in that law. And that went all the way from moral commandments like the most famous 10 ones, right? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie, do not steal, right? Um, do not take the, Lord, the, the name of your Lord God in vain, right? The moral law, the Ten Commandments, right? Then there was things like ritual law or sacrificial law, and those kind of, um, those kind of gave boundaries for the life of the temple and how sacrifices would work and who would offer the sacrifices for the forgiveness and atonement of the people and how often those sacrifices would be given and what type of animals were appropriate and what type of animals were inappropriate for those sacrifices. And then there was things like the ceremonial law, which had to do with how the religion was practiced, right? Then there had to do with like purity and cleanliness laws. Uh, there was dietary laws and regulations. That's why you see people a lot of the times when they have something maybe negative to say about the Christian faith or the Jewish faith and be like, you guys don't even eat bacon. You can read it in the Old Testament, right? No bacon, no shellfish. Who wants to follow a religion like that? I mean, not me. Thank the Lord, right? That the law was abolished in Jesus Christ, right? And now we are free to eat of the bacon, can I get an amen? Can someone testify to the fact that Jesus sets us free to eat bacon, okay? Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that like there, there was the, the law was very extensive, very, very extensive, and in many cases was very burdensome for the people. It was difficult to follow. It was, it was difficult to make sense of it. It was difficult to ensure that you were walking in faithfulness to the Lord. What the law ended up doing was exposing the deep-seated and radical sin and unholiness of the people and their need for a God to make it all right. Part of the ceremonial law that the Jews followed was the law of the tithe, where 10% of what they earned or 10% of what they gained was offered back. Now understand that in these times, um, currency was not necessarily money like we experience it now. It was not coins and dollar bills, right? But it was normally goods. And normally it was agricultural goods. It was an agrarian society. So it was, um, it was grains, it was fruits, it was vegetables, it was animals, right? It was things that they would use to both live on and barter with and that they would use um, as their, their currency. Now, the tithe was given here not only as an act of an obedience to the command of God, but as a recognition that the Lord had delivered the Israelites from captivity in Egypt and had delivered them into a land of promise and abundance. The tithe was given in response to or as an act of worship regarding God's deliverance of the people from slavery in Egypt. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 26, right? Deuteronomy is one of those books in the beginning of your Bible in the Old Testament that 
catalogs various aspects of the law. And it doesn't, it doesn't take, you know, you, you can just kind of flip through it and you can see most of our Bibles have, um, most of our Bibles have headings in them. And you can see that the law is, um, is recorded all the way throughout these first five books of the Old Testament in various sections. Worshiping other gods, clean and unclean food, tithing, um, canceling debts, the freeing of servants, um, Passover, the firstborn, detestable practices, uh, things like that, right? When we get into this, um, Deuteronomy chapter 26, uh, we see that there, was a, uh, that there was a way in which the tithe was supposed to be process, processed or seen in the midst of the Jewish faith, in the midst of the Jewish practice. Deuteronomy chapter 26 when you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving to you and put them into a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, the tabernacle, right, or the temple, and say to the priest in the office at that time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our forefathers to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with few people and lived there, became a great nation, powerful and numerous, but the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer putting us to hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. And so the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place, gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that the Lord has given me. And so the tithe early on was in response to an act of worship in response to the delivery or the deliverance of the people out of slavery and captivity from Egypt. It was called the sacred portion. And now I bring the first place and, and the Levites and the aliens among you shall receive all these good things of your household. When you have finished setting aside the tenth of all your produce for the third of the year and the third of the tithe. Give it to the Levite. It was called the sacred portion. And every third year, the tithe was used to support the Levites and the fatherless and the widows and the aliens. Here we see in Deuteronomy 6, 26, chapter 12. The important to note here that the, um, that what, it's important to note here what, portion of the person's wealth was offered to God in the tithe. Uh, the, the idea here early on in Deuteronomy or early on in Jewish life was not that was not that any old bit of resource or money or possession or produce that you had was offered to the Lord. But it was always this phrase that was offered. It was the first fruits of what I had that was offered. 
It was the first fruits as opposed to the, what's the opposite of first, right? Come on, don't, don't leave me down. Last, right? It wasn't, it wasn't the last fruits, right? It was the first fruits. It's not a trick question, okay? It was the first fruits. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 10, here it tells us, And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, O Lord, have given to me. That the tithe was meant to be a representation of the first that thing that was produced from the land that the Lord had blessed them with. Meaning that the tithe was meant to be the very best portion of what the person had to offer. The very best portion of what the person had to offer. Not what was left over at the end of a month of eating, right? Not, what, not what, was, what was remaining after they had consumed all that they had opportunity to consume and then the Lord got a little portion of what was, of what was left. The tithe was always meant to represent the best of what a person received from the blessing that the Lord had given to them. That's why the tithe is called the first fruit. Right? Uh, some even say that this dates back, or the, at least the spiritual principle dates back all the way to the disagreement between Cain and Abel. Why was Cain's um, sacrifice to the Lord detestable? Why was Abel's um, pleasing to the Lord? The language of the poetry there seems to um, convey that Abel gave from the best portion of what was produced Cain gave simply whatever he could find in that last moment. So the tithe has always meant to be the first fruits, the very best of what we have. Now, if we think about this and we think about what we've been talking about regarding God's desire to have our hearts above all other things, this makes really, really good sense all the way into the New Testament, right? We're at the beginning of the Old Testament here talking about first fruits and the best that we have. The idea seems to shoot its way all the way through biblical history, even into the New Testament texts that we've been talking about recently, where God is not interested at all in your money. As if God needs your money. As if he's like, hey guys, the electric bill up here in heaven, it... It's due next week, and if I don't get your tithe, they're going to turn the lights out, right? Like, listen, get this in your brain. God needs nothing. He is, in, he is in lack of nothing. He does not need anything from us. He does not need anything from the church. He has in himself everything anyone or anything could ever need. He is the source of all things, right? God is not interested, God is interested not in our money. It's his already and he, he doesn't need it. God is interested in our hearts. And, and, and because God is interested in our hearts, God does not want the leftover portions of our hearts. The parts that exist after we have lived our lives in our own direction, with our own goals, and with our own aspirations, and with our own sense of purpose. 
God doesn't want the portion of us that flops down at the end of the day, says a quick prayer over the last meal that we have, and falls asleep somewhere before the proverbial amen. Okay. God desires the best parts of who we are in ev with every step in every area of our life. He desires the best parts of our relationships. He desires the best parts of our marriages. He desires the best parts of our finances. He desires the best parts of our energy, of our time, of our resources, of all that we have. God wants the best of us, the first of us, the most significant parts of who we are. Not because he's jealous, but because he is deserving. Because he is worthy. Because he is holy. And in a recognition of his deliverance in our lives comes a response to say, Lord, we will give you all that we have in the very best way. So the tithe was used in this way. The tithe was also used, as we see in the Old Testament, the tithe of the Jewish people was used um, to support, listen, to support the tribe of Israel that served as priests in the religious life of the Israelites. Now, there's 12 tribes in Israel. Uh, the Levites were a tribe that was set apart to minister to God on behalf of the people of the Israelite nation in both the tabernacle, the temporary mobile dwelling place of the Lord, and later the temple in the promised land of Jerusalem. What was interesting about the Levites as opposed to the other nations of Israel is that they were given no section of land or no inheritance in the promised land like the other 11 tribes were. The other 11 tribes had their own section of land in the promised land. If you look at the back of your Bible and it's got a map, you'll often see the area, the map of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Levites, not going to find them out there because they were given no inheritance. They were given no land to settle themselves. They were set apart to serve within the temple and serve within the tabernacle. So a tithe of the goods of the other tribes was due the Levites so that they could faithfully administer to the religious life of the nation, of the people uninhibited by the cares of the world around them. They were solely laser-focused on, on ministering into the temple and making sure that the religious life of the Israelites was squared away. And the other tribes were responsible for making sure that the Levites had everything that they needed to live so that they could focus on their service to the Lord on behalf of the nation. We can see a brief example here. Um, it's, it's really extensive in the Old Testament, but a brief example is in the book of Numbers, right? Which is the third book of the Old Testament, the third book of the Bible. In uh, Numbers chapter 18, verses 20 and 21. But really, um, if you wanted a, a more full look at this, just you could read the whole chapter of Numbers chapter 18, right? Because it talks about the duties of the priests and the Levites the offerings for the priests and the Levites. 
Uh, but then we get down into verses 20 and 21. The Lord said to Aaron, who was the head of the Levites, the Levite tribe, the Lord said to Aaron, you will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share. I am your inheritance among the Israelites. I mean, just like grapple that for a second, right? Where, where the Lord was saying to Aaron and the Levites, listen, I give you, you I, there's nothing materially that you're going to get. I am your share. <laughs> I, I am your portion, right? Like he was, he was speaking directly into the heart of their need for provision. Hey, listen, yeah, they have goats and grain, right? You have me in your fullness, Verse 21, I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. Tent of meeting was the place, the proverbial place of the presence of God as they were traveling throughout um, uh, the, well, when they were in exile traveling on their way to the promised land, right? I give, a, I give the full tithe to the Levites while they are ministering, serving at the tent of meeting, right? So there was this idea that the, the, the tithe of the nation of Israel was meant to help sustain those who were ministering, at the, ministering in the presence of God on their behalf and was organizing the, the, the ministry life of the nation. Now, just like with the first understanding of the tithe that we just talked about, God wanting the first fruits of our hearts, the first fruits of our tithe, we see here that this principle shoots its way all the way into the New Testament and the New Testament church as well. The same type of understanding of tithe was carried through and past this Jewish ceremonial law, even into the New Testament after the law had been abolished through Jesus. Right? Ceremonial law had been abolished through Jesus, but this principle now worked its way all the way through Judaism, now into Christianity, all the way up to the point where Jesus himself, multiple times in the Gospels, for instance, Matthew chapter 10, verse 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says, in regards to his disciples, as he's sending them out among the Jewish people to minister the gospel to them, to preach that the kingdom of heaven is here, that they should repent, to heal people of sicknesses and diseases, to raise the dead, to cure the leper, to serve the widow and the orphan. He sends them out and he says this to them. He says, a worker is worth his wages. Jesus here referring to when the work that the disciples do in ministering to the Jews, how in the world would they provide for themselves? He said, don't take a tunic, don't take a bag, don't take a staff, don't take anything extra, don't worry. When you go into these places, you as a worker unto the ministry of the Lord, you are worth your Wage and you will be provided by those who recognize the work of the ministry and the gospel that you come to take, that you come to serve underneath. Jesus himself understood this. 
but also in the work of Paul, right? Paul, Paul was not, the Apostle Paul was not um, afraid. He didn't think that this was abnormal at all. In fact, when he was speaking to Timothy, his ministry protege, the, the, the man that he was raising up to serve churches all over the place, he said this, um, he said this about them. He said this about the idea of um, being supported in ministry by those you are serving. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Paul says this to Timothy. He said, listen, Timothy, the, the elders who direct the affairs of the church, who direct the affairs of the church well, they are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Now, what does this mean? Sometimes there's confusion. What, what, ox and treading grain, what, what is that? What, what, what gives, right? Well, if you've ever seen, um, you ever seen how they broke up or milled flour or milled grain, is that there would be, there would be an ox that would pull a large circular stone behind it and they would walk on top of the grain with that ox, and that large circular stone would crush the grain. It was like in this big circle, so the ox would just run and walk in a circle all day, right, around this central post, and they would crush and mill the grain that way, right? Hard work for an ox. That's how they, that's how they processed their grain. Well, what do you think an ox was going to do while it was walking on wheat all day doing hard work? It was going to what? eat some of the grain, right? And the person who wants to keep all of it for themselves, even in the midst of the, um, the ox's hard work, would do what to an ox? Put a muzzle on it. You're not eating any of that grain, right? And what, what Paul says and what the scripture says is, hey, look, the ox is doing the good work. Let it eat some of the grain, Right? Don't muzzle the oxes that's treading the grain. A worker is worth their wages. And so the principle of the tithe of the Old Testament was also meant to support the work of and the life of those who ministered in the temple, in the religious life, on behalf of the people. And Jesus and Paul carry that same lesson into the New Testament for Christians to grab as a spiritual lesson for us is that those who minister on our behalf are worth their wage. Do not, do not um, muzzle the ox of those who work to serve the Lord on your behalf. So we have the principle of the tithe that talks about the, um, the bringing the first fruits, right, in response to God's deliverance of us. Then we have the principle of the tithe that supports the ministry of the Levites and the priests in the temple. It supports the religious life of the people. Where else do we see the tithe in the Old Testament? Well, probably one of the most famous places that we see the, the idea of the tithe in the Old Testament is in the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, right? So 
if you, maybe Malachi can be hard to find for you, right? But if you know where the Old Testament is, right, the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just go to the left, like one page from Matthew, okay? The beginning of Matthew, and you find Malachi. And uh, Malachi is a really interesting, uh, interesting little book, and there's an interesting little section in Malachi, in Malachi chapter 3, okay? So let's read um, uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 through 12 here, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, you are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees, and you have not kept them. So return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, but, but you ask, the people ask, well, how, Lord, how, Lord, are we to return? Will a man rob God, God says? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we, how do we rob you, God? How could we possibly rob you? You're in heaven. We're down here. We don't have the keys to heaven. How, how is it that we're robbing you? In tithes and offerings, the Lord says. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord your God. Tithing um, here in Malachi was a topic of God's displeasure, actually, with the Israelites. But it was also a topic of God's promised blessing to the Israelites. They had, they had turned away from him. They had not followed his decrees. And what, was the, what were they being accused of? What was, their, what was the, the basis for their disobedience? The basis of their disobedience was that God accused them of robbing him. Of taking what was rightfully his. They were robbing God by not following through on tithes and offerings. We've heard it said uh, before that tithing, um, tithing is not giving. Tithing is not stealing. Right? That the tithe belonged and all has always belonged to the Lord. So the giving of the tithe, according to the Old Testament, according to the Jews, was not an act of giving. The surrender of the tithe was the act of not actively robbing God of what was rightfully his. You... How have, we, how have we disobeyed your decrees in tithes and offerings? Where are they at? You have robbed me in this. 
They were robbing him by not following through on tithes and offerings, indicating that the tithe belonged to God, and that by withholding it, they were simply stealing what was rightfully his. And then came the promise. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, the storehouse here was, it was a literal place that was adjacent to the temple. It was a, a room, a very, 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 very large room where all of the tithes from the 11 nations of Israel were stored for use by the Levites. It was an actual physical place attached to the area of worship. And God was like, hey, look, bring my whole tithe into the storehouse and then he said the thing that he only says in one place in all of Scripture. In fact, in all the rest of Scripture, he says, don't do this. But in this place, he says, do it. Test me. Test me in this, says the Lord God. And see what happens. See what happens. He essentially says, hey, Call my bluff on it. Call my bluff. Right? Because what is, the, what is the alternative to God's faithfulness here? To God fulfilling the promise of abundant blessing in response to a person's tithe and offering. The alternative is that we, that is that the people tithe, the people offer what they have to the Lord he doesn't respond and then now can be accused of being a liar. God, we did what you said. You didn't do anything. You, God, are a liar. So, is God going to be made out to be a liar? You better believe he's not, right? You, absolutely not, right? And so God, is God going to come through on the promise? You better believe that he will. See if I do not open the floodgates of heaven to pour out more blessing than you have room to receive. The only place in Scripture where God encourages a people to test him outright. But the implicit lesson, listen, still, like our other two lessons from this morning, still threads its way into New Testament Christianity. It's not, a foreign, it's not a foreign principle or concept. It's spoken of differently. We read about it last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and verse 10. Remember this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. So the, the principle remains from Old Testament Judaism ceremonial law all the way through the New Testament, right? We're hearing it out of the mouth of Paul. We're hearing it out of the life of Jesus, out of the mouth and life of Jesus. The same principles exist. But, but wait, there's more, okay? If we can establish in Old Testament history, right, that tithing is a well-established practice, 
rooted deeply in the ceremonial law of the Jewish people and found all over the Old Testament. We also see that some of the principles of tithing find their way into the practice of the Christian church and in the New Testament. Is everyone following me on those two points? Yes, we're with us so far? Okay. So here's the million-dollar question. No, no pun intended, right? The million-dollar question. Do we see tithing as a commanded or recommended practice in the New Testament? And specifically, do we see it as a recommended or commanded practice to the people who are no longer under the law, but have been set free by the grace of Jesus Christ? It's a good, is it a question? What do we mean here? Okay. What, what do I mean here? Tithing, as we see, firmly rooted in the Old Testament as part of the Jewish ceremonial law, meant to provide for the temple, meant to provide for worship, meant as an expression of worship, meant to, uh, meant to do all of these things, meant to be a, a way in which we do not rob God of the things that he has offered to us. It's very clearly not a part of the moral law, that Jesus speaks about in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament. We often ask the question like, okay, what relationship does even Jesus himself have with the Jewish law in the Gospels? How do we see G Jesus um, explaining things like the Jewish law in his ministry in the Gospels? Well, what we do see is we see Jesus preaching about the moral law all the time. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about the Jewish moral law, right? You have heard that it was said long ago, do not commit adultery. You have heard that it was said long ago, do not murder. You have heard that it was said long ago. You have heard that it was said long ago, right? He talks about the moral law over and over and over and over and over and over again. You have heard that it was said long ago, the Sabbath was made for man. I tell you that, 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 or that man was made for the Sabbath. I tell you the Sabbath was made for man. It was a gift, But we don't see tithing as part of this moral law that we see Jesus reflect in his teaching. We see him talk about not stealing, not murdering, not committing adultery. We, we see him talking about keeping the Sabbath. We see him talking about all aspects of the moral law, but a part of the ceremonial law. Do this when you come into worship. Make sure you cleanse yourself. Stay away from these types of foods. Make sure, you're, make sure you're providing these types of offerings in the temple for the sacrifice of atonement. Make sure you're doing this on this day and this on this day. Do we see Jesus or Paul even uplifting or upholding these types of aspects of the Jewish law? The answer is no, we don't. We also ask the question, what was Paul, what do we know about the primary message of Paul in the rest of the New Testament? Well, almost two-thirds of the New Testament was written by a guy named the Apostle Paul, and what was his overarching, overwhelming message to all the people that he was ministering to and all of the churches that he was spreading, or that he was planting? Let's look at a few examples here. Galatians chapter 3, right, verses... 23 through 25. 
And these are just, I'm, I'm going to give you just like two, two examples, right? They're not the only two examples, right? This is like deeply rooted in all of Paul's, in all of Paul's writing. In fact, in two weeks, we're going to start a sermon series on the letter to the Romans, which is like literally all about this principle. But this, he writes to the, he writes to the Galatian people. He says, look, before, before faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. We were locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under supervision of the law. That in our, by our and through our faith in Jesus Christ, you and I are no longer under the supervision of or in the or bound by the regulations of the Old Testament law, the law that was given to the Israelites. That does not, that does not factor in our relationship with God anymore because God mediated the relationship personally himself through Jesus Christ. And that by our faith in him, we are set free from that law. Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. We'll be studying this, um, this more extensively here in a few weeks. Paul says it even more explicitly. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. We have died to the law so that we can belong to Christ so that we may bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work at our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That, there, that in Jesus Christ, there was a death that came to the law of the Old Testament. There was death because now, because now there was no, the, 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 the law, what the law was powerless to do, Jesus does by faith in him. The law was powerless to save. The law was powerless to make us in right relationship with God. But now through Jesus Christ, we have come to know God fully and be reconciled unto him by faith. And all throughout the New Testament, both Paul and Jesus consistently are like, we are no longer under the law. We are by faith in Jesus Christ. Say, so, okay, pastor. So are you saying that tithing was a Jewish ceremonial practice and that since we are followers of Jesus and Jesus abolished the law in all its regulations, that we are not bound to the practice of tithing as outlined in the Old Testament? And my answer is yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. 
That is exactly what I'm saying. Maybe you've never had a pastor tell you that like tithing is not a New Testament principle. Maybe you have, but I'm here to tell it to you today. What I'm also here to tell you is that the standard that the New Testament sets for our giving is exponentially higher than the tithe. Is exponentially greater than the tithe. So you might for like five seconds have been like, Whoo, no more tithing for me. And I want to hear you say, yeah, you're right. I don't think you should tithe. I think you should go beyond it. I think you should go higher. I think that I think the standard in the New Testament is exponentially higher than a static 10%. Oh, I just I'll take off this, you know, 10% and here you go, right? Exponentially higher. The New Testament, especially in the letters of Paul that, that Paul writes to his churches and the book of Acts calls Christians to live lives of radical and sacrificial generosity, making intentional decisions to give both out of our poverty and out of our wealth with a cheerful and willing heart, knowing that by doing so, you feed the work of God's kingdom in the world. The New Testament teaches us that that those who follow Jesus follow a model of radical, sacrificial generosity. If you remember from last week, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. And what did we see there? If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, We'll be reminded of some of those things, but we'll also take them a little bit further than we did last week. Now, who here would say that you've read a fair amount of the New Testament, specifically um, the writings of Paul, all the letters, all right? right? And, and would you say, would any of you say that Paul was kind of shy about telling people how it was? He really wasn't, right? And if there was a command that they need, that the people needed to follow, would Paul tell them, this is the command that you need to follow, and you're disobeying the thing that you know you need to follow? He would do that, right? Paul was the dude, okay? So look, just like we miss these things all the time, but look, about the, look, in the, look, look at about the way that Paul speaks to the Corinthians about the act of giving on behalf of his ministry to Rome using the Macedonian church, which is super poor, as an example. And when he comes to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, he says this. He's like, hey, look, I'm not commanding you to give. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul says in regards to giving here, 
I'm not commanding you. Which seems like a strange thing for Paul to say when he, in so many other places, is not shy at all about commanding the followers of Jesus to do the things that represented obedience to the word of God and the heart of God. Paul does not command them to give because there is nothing to command through faith in Jesus Christ. What he does do, however, is remind them where the basis of their giving does come from. The basis of their giving comes as a mirrored example of the giving of Jesus Christ himself, who gave up all of his wealth and became poor so that we, through him, might become rich. Now, that doesn't seem to me to sound like Jesus gave up 10% of everything that he had in order that we might have more. It sounds to me like Jesus himself took on a posture of radical, sacrificial generosity so that the work of God and the kingdom of God might be expanded through, I don't know, all of human history for all time, forever and ever. Amen. It comes from the example of Jesus, his self-giving, that he became poor for our sake so that we become rich through him. That although Jesus had everything, he voluntarily took on nothing so that we would have everything. Now earlier in the same letter and same section, Paul holds up the poor Macedonian churches as an example to follow. When he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and what? Even beyond their ability. The idea there is not that he upheld the idea of the Macedonian churches giving 10% of the little that they had, but that Paul was like, they were radically and sacrificially generous for the cause of the gospel. Look at their example. In Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, Jesus, um, Jesus used the story um, of, uh, uh, of a widow. It's a great story. Talked a little bit about it. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 and 44. Now, maybe you need more convincing, maybe you don't. This is just more convincing, okay? Radical sacrificial generosity is the concept of giving in the New Testament, right? Jesus himself, here. Jesus sat down the opposite place where the offerings were put. It's at the temple, right? Watch the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in what? Put in everything, all she had to live on. Jesus held up the example of the widow, not as one who gave the right percentage, but as one who put on everything that she had to live on. 
It was clear that even for Jesus at this point, giving in a manner that represents radical, sacrificial generosity represented the heart that God honors. One of the good things about the tithe is that it's pretty straightforward, right? 10% is 10%. It kind of eliminates a lot of the thinking that we have to do about it. But listen, we aren't left with no direction regarding giving, even in a model of radical, sacrificial generosity. Because you may be saying, okay, pastor, I see it. I agree with it. The Holy Spirit's um, pressing it into my heart. But if it's not 10%, then I don't even know where to start. Because I don't even know what to pr- how to practically process through radical, sacrificial generosity. Well, we're gonna l- let's look at Paul here. And uh, because he does speak a little bit about the grace of giving in his letters to the Corinthians, okay? I'm going to go back to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to, we'll start actually um, with, with two sections of Scripture. Let's read 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll go back to 2 Corinthians 9, where we were last week. First Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. Collection for God's people. Now, Paul says, now about the collection for God's people, uh, just, just do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Okay, pretty simple. Paul gives them some, seems like what, some fairly um, practical advice. Now, you can keep your finger there if you want. Just turn over a few pages to the right to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where we were last week. And um, let's start at verse 6, okay? Uh, remember this, 2 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. That's a principle there, right? But listen, here's some practicality, starting in verse 7. Each one should give what they have decided in their heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Okay, so let's, let's pull out some practicality here, both from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, and also 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. We see this as a principle of our giving, even when it's radical and generous, as New, New Testament Christians should hold to. It's this, is that we should be doing it regularly. Our giving should be 
regular. Okay? Number one, our giving should be regular. Paul says it here. Um, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. It should be a regular occurrence because it stirs up within us a remembrance of the deliverance that God has given to us, a provision of all things that we have, and an opportunity to invest in and press in the ongoing work of the kingdom and the ministry of God. We should do it regularly. It should not be an irregular occurrence for us just whenever we feel like it or whenever we got a little extra or whenever the mood hits and is right. We should do it then. No, we should do it regularly. And not only should we do it regularly, but we should do it intentionally. We should do it intentionally. It should be an intentional decision in our mind to say, I am setting this aside. I am offering this. I am, I, I, I am, I am working in radical sacrificial generosity in this way. And it's a decision that I have made. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, and also 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each one should give what they have decided already in their heart to give. An intentional decision. Now, listen, what does it mean to be intentional in this way? How do we... How do we grab hold of intentionality? Intentionality comes through the process of prayer. Lord, how would you have me give in this season of my life? In what ways? In what measure? In, in, in what direction? How would you have me respond, Lord, to your deliverance of, over my life? How would you have me worship you in this way? How would you have me support the work and ministry of the kingdom in the church? How would you have me give in such a radical and generous way, Lord, in this season? So it comes, intentionality comes through prayer. Intentionality comes through wisdom. You know, God is not asking us to divorce ourselves from wise thinking. God is not telling us uh, God is not asking us to take our brain out of our head, right? It is still important to operate under the principles of wisdom. Is it wise for me to go into extraordinary debt so I can maintain a specific lifestyle that I want to have but absolutely drains my resources from being able to be radically and sacrificially generous to others. Because I'll tell you, the, the things that we invest in primarily in the world eventually will be gone. Gone. Right? The ways in which you invest in the kingdom will exist into eternity. Forever, right? Where do you want your investment to go? I don't know about you, but like, yes, I have a retirement account and I want the best return on my investment for my retirement. You? No? 
I mean, it seems like a wise idea to me. Like if I want to retire at any point, like I should want the best return on my investment. Where do we get the best return on our investment, right? We get our best, the best return on our investment as we invest primarily in the things of heaven, right? Because heaven and earth, or heaven will, um, like our eternal investment will last forever. So intentionality comes through prayer. It comes through wisdom. It also comes through communication. If you have a spouse, right? If you have someone that you share finances with, it is not my recommendation that you do something intentionally without communicating it intentionally with your spouse. It's a Listen, in almost 20 years of ministry, I have counseled enough marriages to know that money is a major issue, right? Communicate about it. Number three, how do we give radically and sacrificially, even in the midst, um, uh, in a practical way? Avoid reluctance and compulsion. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, we should give what they've decided in their heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, Work to align your heart with God's heart on the matter. We need to, if we, are, if we feel like we are giving reluctantly or under compulsion, it's because our hearts are not aligned with the principle that we give because Jesus gave. And we see it only as a requirement that we have to do because God said it, but I'm doing it reluctantly and not intentionally. I'm kind of doing it under compulsion. Every, we don't pass the plate here, but I'm sure that you've sat in church at a time before. I've sat in church at a time before where they passed pass the plate for offering. I had not intentionally considered how I was going to give to the Lord in that day or in that season. The plate comes to me. I'm holding it, and I'm like, oh, shoot. What now? And what do you do in that moment? Uh, Whatever's in the pockets, right? Whatever's in the wallet, grab it, plug it. Oh, whew. Glad I got that responsibility out of the way, right? Talk about the definition of reluctance and compulsion, right? Not intentional, not aligning my heart with Lord. Thank you, for, thank you, Lord, for delivering me from slavery unto death that I might live to worship you and be radically, sacrificially generous with what you've given to me. I love doing this, Lord. Right? And until we get our hearts there, we are going to struggle with reluctance and compulsion. And so if we are struggling with reluctance and compulsion, we need to ask the Lord to reveal in a more clear and basic way that we give because he has first given to us. Lord, give us an understanding of the depth of your radical and sacrificial generosity for my life so that I may give in the same measure, Lord. Because you know that we do have what we have so that, Paul says it here, so that we can be generous on every occasion, right? You will be made rich, verse 11. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Number four, we need to grasp the cheerfulness of giving. Right? God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Right? Um, 
Listen, can you fake it until you make it with God? No, you cannot. Right? So, <sighs> God loves a cheerful giver. Here we go. Right? It doesn't work that way. Right? They're actually, like we act, God, God actually, through, through the Apostle Paul, is encouraging us to grasp onto a cheerfulness of giving, the privilege of seeing others express worship and thankfulness to God because of our generosity. That's what he did with the that's what he did here with the Corinthians. Okay? Is that is that he reminded them, hey, or, or he he kind of extolled the Macedonians uh, to the Corinthians by saying they were joyful, they were excited about the opportunity to give intentionally, not without compulsion. They were cheerful about it. Why? Because they understood that the giving of this generous gift allowed the gospel to go out to them, right? And, and when the gospel went out to them and they received the truth of the gospel and the joy of the Lord came over them, they, they, they responded with overwhelming praise and thankfulness to the God that sent Jesus Christ to them. And how do you think Paul was funded in his ability to go to the place in Macedonia, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They received the gospel of Jesus Christ and then said, thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you, Lord. We worship you. It was, and so the Macedonian church were able to look at that moment and were like, oh, wait. We gave. Paul went they believed, now they're worshiping, that makes me cheerful. Because the same grace that I have received from Jesus, they're receiving now, and I was a part of it, and now I want to give more because I want more people to experience it, and I want to get it there. Like, what can we do? And listen, there's just this one, like, like <laughs> you need to understand this. We give so that others may believe. We give so that others may believe. Every single person here, every single person here that believes by faith in Jesus Christ is the recipient of someone else's radical sacrificial generosity. No one. No one, is, no one experiences outside of the, the, the sacrificial radical generosity of the church throughout generations to bring and proclaim the message of the gospel to others. We give so that others may believe, may receive the same gospel that has saved us. I have two things, three things and then we're going to end. And I, I fully expect applause for getting done a half hour earlier than I have been the last few weeks. So, <laughs> How do I determine? We, we, we get some steps, right? Four steps in trying to work out some practicality 
for radical sacrificial generosity in the midst of being Christians who have been released from the Old Testament law of the tithe, but into a higher standard. Well, how do I actually like do it then? How do I work through it? Okay. Um, here, here is um, here is really the like Captain Obvious pastor moment. Is number one is uh, you need to ask the Lord. You need to ask the Lord. Do not give reluctantly. Do not give under compulsion. Give intentionally. And it's not up on the screen, but I would say this in, um, as a kind of like a, a sub-point to this. When you ask the Lord, when, when you ask the Lord questions that he, that, um, that the answer is meant to bring you greater holiness and, and closeness to him and greater obedience to him, right? Meaning sometimes we ask the Lord questions that aren't necessarily directly related to how close we're following him, okay? Sometimes we ask questions of the Lord and it's directly related to how close we're following him. Like, Lord, please point out and reveal any sin in my life that is keeping me from experiencing the fullness of your joy in this season. You better buckle your seatbelts, y'all. Right? Because when you ask the Lord questions with an open and surrendered heart, that he, he's eager to answer the questions that produce closeness with him and intimacy with him. But that's not the end of it, Right? What actually happens is if you ask him questions like that and he answers and he responds and he will and then you say, no, I didn't mean that, Lord. <laughs> it creates a hardness of heart and it creates what I call spiritual cotton balls that progressively get stuck into your ears and the longer that you harden your heart towards the things that God says, but that you ignore, the more difficult it is to hear him in the future. And so you may get to a point in your life where you're like, Lord, I need to hear from you. And the Lord is like, but you never listen. Right? I need to hear from you, Lord. And he's like, I speak to you all the time and you progressively just shove the cotton balls in your ears. You don't want to hear. You want to hear, but you don't want to obey and I don't talk for nothing. Okay? So when you ask the Lord and he tells you, um, I would exhort you to obey. And I believe that the same spiritual principle that God established in Malachi chapter 3 is equally as effective, because we see it in the New Testament as well, right? Reaping and sowing um, is in play here. And so that's why we say, what, how do I determine what to give? Well, I'm going to ask the Lord first, and then maybe I'm going to start with the tithe as a baseline. I think it's a good baseline. In many cases, in many people's lives, right? A tithe, the tithe 
the, the, the 10% is, is, is approaching a, a place of um, sacrifice, is approaching a place of generosity, is approaching a place of like, yes, this is a significant portion of what I have to live on, what I need to like, what I need to, to um, get through life, be provided for in life. So the tithe, I would say, is a really good baseline place to start. I don't know where to start, Pastor Cameron. I don't know where to start, Lord. Start with the tithe. It's a great place to start. It's a great place to start. Number three, allow God to stretch your faith and show himself as faithful to bless and provide. Now, listen, I was talking with Pastor Luke about it this week a little bit, and I was like, we were talking about preaching, and I said, there is no, there is nothing, I've been doing this long enough now to know, Pastor Gordy will tell you, I'm sure it's true in his life, Pastor Luke would tell you, I'm sure it's true in his life, there is nothing worse than preaching about things that you're not obeying. It is horrible. There's also nothing worse than preaching about things that you're not experiencing. Really hard to preach on prayer when you don't pray. Right? Um, And so the reason I said that is because in my own personal life, I have witnessed a, uh, the history of God's personal overwhelming, abundant provision for my family has been, like, incredible. Just, like, out of this world, incredible. And so it brings me to a place of, like, having the confidence to say this, okay? I, like... What I would say is, if you're just walking into this life of like beginning to give, and you're asking the Lord these questions, and you're wondering where to start, you say, okay, I'm going to start as a t- at a tithe, but I'm just telling you right now, I know my finances, and I'm going to fall flat on my face. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be bad for me financially. If you committed to this, if you committed even to the baseline of a tithe for six months and you came back to me after that six months and said, Pastor, I don't know where you were, what you were talking about or what you thought you were saying or what you thought you've experienced, but like my life is a mess right now financially. God has not provided for me. God has not shown up. God has, you know, like everything that I have is falling apart. I have not been provided for. Like my financial life is in ruins. Like I don't know what you're talking about. And if you can say that with integrity and character and truthfulness after six months of doing it intentionally, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, grasping onto a cheerful, a cheerful attitude, and you are still like, nope, you're wrong. I will refund your money. I am not kidding. I am not, I am not kidding. A single solitary bit. I will give you back every cent. 
every single, every cent, every, every one. I don't care if I got to do it personally from my own checking account. Whatever it is, however much it is, I do not care. I am so extraordinarily, you could not move me with a bulldozer from the place of God's faithfulness in financial, in the financial world. You could, there is not a single thing that you could do to get me to move from that place. So much so that I'm telling you right now, I will give it all back to you if after six months you come back and say the Lord didn't do what he said he was going to do. All of it. Test me in this, the Lord says. Test me in this. And see if I will not open up the floodgates of heaven to give you so much blessing that you will not have room enough to hold it. The things that you have do not rust and fade away as long as or as quickly as the rest of the world. The food in the fridge seems to last a week or two longer. You think I'm joking. Listen, I'm not joking, right? Like down to the very food in the fridge. It lasts longer. I buy less groceries, right? I got five kids, I'm telling you, right? I should be in the poorhouse with the groceries, all right? The vehicles last longer. I got, I got T-shirts that I wore on my honeymoon 20 years ago. They're still in perfect condition, right? We have everything that we need in, and not just everything that we need. We have things in, a, in abundance so that we're able to be generous on every occasion. The Lord is so good. And I'm telling you, the Lord will be so good in your life. So good. I challenge you. Give it six months. And come back and prove the Lord wrong. Prove the Lord wrong. You, you may ask, I mean, I guess I didn't really, you, there, we didn't talk about like how we give here, right? Some of you know, some of you don't, right? How do, how do we give here? Like, well, we have two main methods of giving here, at, like giving to the work of the kingdom here. We have the silver bucket that sits in the back right there. It's an easy way for you to give, if you like to give with like your hands plopping something down in a bucket, great way to give, okay? We also give through, you can give electronically through the, the app, right? Um, some, some, some are like, I don't know about the, uh, like, well, my data stolen or anything like messed with or whatever. I will tell you, I have been at Conduit for nine years, going on 10 years here, coming up this next year. Um, I've given via the app. Every single time I give, I give through the app. I've never had an issue with it, never had a problem with it. Very, 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 very trustworthy. It's a great way to give. You can also give on our website, okay? Um, if giving to this place is where the Lord leaves you, leads you to give, and I will tell you, right, I, I do believe that the Lord calls us first to give into the storehouse, into the storehouse, Right? The storehouse was the local place of worship for 
the individual person and the tribe as a whole, so that those who were ministering on your behalf were, were, um, were given all that they need in order to direct the, I guess, affairs or work of the, of the body that you were a part of, right? I think it's great to give to missionaries. I think it's great to give to organizations. I think it's great to give to FLN. I think it's great to give to this ministry over here. I think it's great to give to this ministry over here. But if you're not giving primarily to the place where you are rooted in community with other believers, where you have submitted to leadership that's above you, that accounts to themselves for, um, to the Lord, right? then I believe that you're missing the principle of giving to the storehouse. Okay. So um, I'm done with the sermon, but I. Uh, but listen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Someone hurry, go tell the red room. I'm done. Um, uh, they're dying in there. Uh, but listen, here, here's the thing. Um, Eric came up and shared an announcement about the family meeting at the end of the month, right? Okay. Um, he said it. I cannot overstate the, the importance. If you, if, you, if you consider yourself a part of the conduit family, extraordinarily important meeting for you to be at, right? You can RSVP either with that little slip or on the app, right? And one of the things that I'm going to be talking about at that meeting is where we as a community and as a family, where do we sit financially? What happens with, what happens with the tithes and offerings? Where do they go? What's our, what's our current like, financial position? What's our financial outlook? Um, as well as updates on ministries, updates on specific missional initiatives. Um, it's, it's really, really, really important for you to be there. And if you're here and you're hearing this, right, I want you to be there. We'll be serving dinner, okay? We're going to provide childcare for as many as we can. So please RSVP if you are able to come to that, all right? Let me pray for us as we move back into worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your graciousness in our lives. Lord, especially uh, for your goodness in providing for us. Lord, I pray that you would give me the grace necessary to Resist the temptation to believe that the things that I have, I have earned, gained, or possessed by my own sense of independence. I'm just a hardworking guy, and so I've earned it all. Lord, and let me be reminded that, Lord, that you own the cattle on a thousand hills, that in you, Lord, and you alone, do I live and move and have my being? That even the very breath in my lungs is given to me as a gift of your grace? Lord, and everything that I have has come from you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would make us as a body rich in every way so that we might be generous on every occasion. To Lord, to the city that we're living in, to the people that we meet, to the places that we go, so that others may believe, Lord, the same gospel that you have seeded into our hearts and we have believed by faith. Father, I pray that you would seed it into others' hearts 
through our radical and sacrificial generosity. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul said to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Conduit, you, you are loved. Go in peace and in the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next week.